0: And I'll be reading the first 15 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to our hearts. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord God, we praise your holy name. We thank you, God, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray, God, that you would give to us ears to hear as the gospel is preached. Be with this your servant. May the words of my lips be your words. May you speak clearly through your word, through your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in Jesus Christ, the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is risen. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day is the most pivotal event in all of human history, it's the culmination of all of the redemptive work of God. There are some though today who would say and even ask the question, is the resurrection important? Is it important to believe? Is it even important that it happened? we would say that it is important. It is the most pivotal day. It is the day that the Son of God was raised again from the dead, providing to all who believe newness of life. The resurrection, beloved, is critical to the Christian faith. But in our modern day, it is a day that, and a belief, a doctrine which has fallen into disregard. There are many today who want to celebrate a day where bunnies abound and eggs are searched for, but deny the reason for that day. There are many, a great many who, curiously enough, claim the banner of Christianity and yet deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is, I believe, a truly strange phenomenon. Can you be a Christian and deny the resurrection of Christ? The exhortation of the earliest Christian missionaries certainly was not that Jesus was simply a great teacher, a a friendly guy who provided uh, many great moral examples. It's a true oddity that someone would claim to be a Christian and yet deny that Jesus Christ bodily was raised from the dead. Because, as the Apostle Paul points out, there is no Christianity if there is no resurrection. Now, imagine this for a moment. Imagine gathering together with friends and family to, say, celebrate someone's birthday. There's a feast that is laid before you. There is candles on the cake. It's a marvelous-looking affair. But there is one thing missing. The person whose birthday it actually is. What if you were to celebrate a special day and the person who you're celebrating isn't even there? What if you were to eat all of the food and you were to light the candles and you were to to sing happy birthday even, and then you were to consume the cake and you were to make merry and celebrate, but the person whose day it is isn't even considered at all? In fact, they're ignored, they're forgotten, they're not important. They weren't even invited to their own party. Can you celebrate something without the object of that celebration? You cannot have a birthday without the person whose birthday it is. And you cannot have the Christian faith without the basis of that faith, which is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord himself. This is a point that the Apostle Paul is making in our text today. Christ died for sin as an atoning sacrifice. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And without these historic facts, we are all lost in our sins. The resurrection, beloved, is central to the gospel. Without it, There is no gospel, there is no Christianity, and there is no church. And so to begin, Paul begins this section of his letter to the church in Corinth by declaring again to them the gospel that has been already preached to them. He says, now I declare to you, brethren, The gospel which I have preached to you, which you received, and in which you now stand. So, in the the course of this letter, he's actually changing subjects and he's focusing again now on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of all believers on the last day. And he's again reminding them and putting before them again the gospel, the good news. The good news which he has been preaching to them. The good news which they had been believing. Now it does seem that there were some in Corinth who had already forgotten the gospel that had been preached to them. And so Paul is putting it before them again. There are two main concerns that Paul wants to bring before the people in relation to the gospel. He wants to remind them of the atoning death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, the believer must hold fast to the gospel which has been preached. Namely, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, sinners like you and me. And that he rose again from the dead. This we must believe and hold fast to as our only hope. Otherwise, our faith is in vain. Because without these truths, there is no basis for faith. The denial of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ brought to its logical conclusion is a denial of faith in Jesus. Now it's not because, it's not that we lose our salvation because of doubt or or struggling. This is not what we're talking about. It is that there are some who have a fruitless belief because it is exercised superficially and without true faith. Now, how does this work out? Well, in our own day, there are people who like the idea of Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus. There are many who like Jesus, meek and mild. They like the Jesus, the the baby Jesus of Christmas, perhaps. They like the the, the good moral teacher, Jesus. They like a teacher, a guru, who will lead us to a better life uh, in the here and now. But they don't like the sin-saving Jesus. They don't like the idea of blood atonement. They reject the miracles of Jesus. They reject the deity of Jesus. They reject the kingship of Christ. To the world, the idea that Jesus rose again for the dead is absurd. Because dead people do not come back to life. Now, we can understand this, perhaps, from an unbeliever. But what about those who claim the banner of Christ? How can someone call themselves a Christian and yet at the same time reject the resurrection? Well, the answer is that they cannot. And this is the problem with theological liberalism. When one denies the miracles of Jesus, they reject the virgin birth, the resurrection. They end up having no grounds for the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith left because if there is no resurrection, if these things are not true, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then there is no faith. Our faith is in vain. It is empty and worthless. And so this is why Paul is telling them, hold fast. Hold fast to the truth. In fact, he says in verse 3 that what he delivered to them is of first importance. Now, what is that? What is of first importance? Christ died for sins. Then he says, in accordance with the Scriptures. So the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, are of first importance. These are first or, or principal things. These are primary truths, he's saying. The very foundation of the gospel rests on these historic events having taken place in real time and space. These are not just fairy tales that we tell. These are not just good stories. We're like, well, it would be really nice if this happened. These are real, actual, historic events which are testified to. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And when we say the scriptures, what he's referring to in the scriptures is the Old Testament. This is the witness. The Old Testament is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. This is what he's pointing to. He's not talking about the New Testament. That would be like uh, you know, the witness talking about it's true because I said it's true. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, look, look at what was written hundreds and thousands of years ago before. That's what I'm talking about in accordance with the scriptures. Christ was to die as an atoning sacrifice for sins. Listen to Isaiah fifty three, five, from the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before the event. This is what Isaiah says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be crushed for us. Christ died for our sins. You see, the entirety of the scriptures, the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system, the prophets, the Psalms, all of these pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come and that he would die for the sins of his people. Just as the lamb was slaughtered in the temple as an atoning sacrifice for the people, so the Lamb of God was slain to pay the penalty for those who are his. Beloved congregation, the Scriptures, from beginning to end, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, speak to this fact. And so Paul delivered to them, as of first importance, of primary importance, the fact that Christ died for sin. And this is the first part of our main point. Jesus Christ died for sin as an atoning sacrifice. But listen, Christ did not only die. Look at verse 4. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This also is a historic fact that happened in real time, in real space. Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he continued under the power of death. In the grave for a time. And then he was raised again on the third day. This is the testimony of the facts which was made by many witnesses and which were included in the revelation made to the Apostle Paul. And we heard about this even earlier. Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, verse 18, saw Jesus and he went, and she went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And in Luke 24, starting in verse 33, there were two who were on the road to Emmaus, and they too saw the risen Christ. And later, it says, they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. And again in John 20, we read of the risen Lord coming to the disciples. It says, And eight days later his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, believe. And you remember Thomas's reaction. He falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Paul makes much of the fact that there were many witnesses. Verse 5, he says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then into James and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we know that uh, Paul is speaking about the road to Damascus when he was converted to Christ, when the risen Lord appeared to him. Look at all these witnesses that Paul provides. All of these maintain the historic veracity of the facts. Jesus was really and truly dead. He really and truly was in the grave. And he really and truly was risen from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And this too, Paul says, was according to the Scriptures. You see, it's not only eyewitnesses that he provides. It's not just individual people. There are the 500 and all of the apostles It's not just mere people that God or that, that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ, but God Himself is a witness to this. The scriptures of the Old Testament also point to this reality. We've we sung and then read Psalm 16. In verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known, the life, uh, make me, you make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was also prefigured in the prophet Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And Jesus himself said that the sign of Jonah would be given to them. Matthew chapter 12. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we know the story of Jonah. Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will rise up, that we may live before Him. And on and on we could go. And so the predictive nature of the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures spoke about the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. For them it was seen in types and shadows. It was prefigured in various places. It was spoken forward of in various ways. The Old Testament is a testimony and a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is speaking about. You see, he's not just trying to proof-text the prediction of the coming of Messiah, but rather he's saying that this is an overarching theme that is found written in the Word of God, which they have. And so the various eyewitnesses of the fact of Jesus being raised from the dead are established by the Scriptures themselves. You see, the Word of God not only predicted what was going to, be, what was going to happen, but it was the main theme, it was the main point. Jesus' is coming, His appearing in time and space is the point of the Old Testament. This is what it was pointing to. And so we see that Jesus appeared to a a whole bunch of different people, men and women, large groups and small groups, rich and poor. All of the apostles witnessed the risen Lord, and of course, Paul himself. And so then here Paul adds a little bit of an aside concerning himself. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul Paul is not last uh, in order of appointment, but he's saying last in rank and dignity. Paul was a man of deep humility. He regarded himself as little. Paul understood well the depth of his own sinfulness, his need for the Savior. Charles Hodge, in commenting on this passage, said this, Quote, those of his children whom God intends to exalt to post of honor and power, he commonly prepares for their elevation by leading them to such a knowledge of their sinfulness to con- keep them constantly debased, end quote. This, pa- little, this little passage, this little aside here in the, in the midst of the, the glories of the resurrection of Jesus is actually pointing to the humility of Paul and his, his constant understanding of his need of the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. Understand, too, this is not a, a false humility that's designed to draw attention to himself. No, Paul had a very deep sense of his sinfulness, of his sinful past. And although Paul was forgiven in Christ for his sin, he never forgot it. He daily sensed his unworthiness to serve the risen Lord. And yet God was, used him so mightily. The persecutor of the church became the great apostle of the church. In many ways, Paul also becomes a very powerful witness. For in the beginning, he was not a friendly witness, was he? He was a persecutor. And yet now here he is giving as first importance the gospel of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10, where he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace that is in me. You know, as Paul speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he can't help but point to how he himself has been radically transformed by Christ. And it's not that he worked so hard to make this happen. No, in fact, what does he point to? He points to the grace that is found in Christ. By God's grace, he has been transformed and changed. Beloved congregation, you should know and understand and take great comfort in this. It is the grace of God that changes you and me. You see, we are not worthy in and of ourselves. We are sinners. We have broken the perfect law of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it is the grace of God in Christ Jesus which fixes all that is broken within us. But listen, this would not be the case if Christ has not risen from the dead. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see, which has defeated sin, which has defeated death. And so with Paul, we can also say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. And so regardless of where it was heard from, the Corinthians had heard the truth And they had believed. And so this brings up the question, if these things are true, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if in fact you have heard and believed the gospel which was preached, then why are there some who have begun to deny the resurrection? Verse 12. He says now if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead There were some in Corinth who were denying the general resurrection of the dead they were saying perhaps well okay well maybe maybe Jesus was raised maybe he wasn't I don't know but but we don't get to be raised there's no resurrection They admitted the resurrection, perhaps, of Jesus, but they denied a general resurrection, and this is inconsistent at best. But the problem was that some in Corinth were denying the resurrection all the way around. They would say there's no resurrection of the dead because dead people don't come back to life. Seems to be a fairly common argument. Now, Paul here is saying, well, wait, 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 hold on for a moment. Christ has been proclaimed to you as raised from the dead. Isn't this what we've been preaching to you? Isn't this what you've been hearing from us? This is the gospel which has been proclaimed in that you believed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ground of all Christian preaching and faith. And since this is true and you believe, then you should have no trouble believing in a general resurrection of all believers on the last day. Because he goes on to say, if there is no resurrection for us, then Christ himself is not raised. And if Christ himself is not raised, verse 14, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I want you to notice, the Apostle Paul is making a very devastating point. One in which we would be wise to pay careful attention to. Because if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, has not been raised bodily from the grave, if He has not passed from death unto life, then what we are doing right here right now is completely pointless i'm expending a lot of hot air for no reason it's vain it's worthless it's of no value because you and i are still lost in our sin beloved if the liberal theologian is correct in his opinion that Jesus is nothing more than a good moral teacher who died in the first century and remains dead, then we are all utterly lost. We are still in our sin, and the chasm separating us from God has not been bridged. This is the consequence of denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The whole gospel Is subverted. In fact, the resurrection is so essential that without it, all the claims of Christ, the validity of his ministry, the work of atonement, his deity, the Trinity, all of the the work in the person of Jesus Christ would be nothing. It'd be worthless. A denial of the gospel. a denial of the resurrection is a denial of the gospel. and a denial of the gospel is rooted not in belief, but in unbelief. And so we would be without hope. As a matter of fact, Paul says in verse 15 that without the resurrection, we're actually a bunch of liars. Look what he says in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Not only would you and I be lost, not only would you and I be with hope, we would also be a room full of liars bearing false witness about God. Beloved, I want you to understand this. Our very faith hangs on the truth of this crucial doctrine. This is Paul's point. He's not trying to sugarcoat it for us. But in fact, verse 20 tells us, Christ has been raised He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The consequences of there being no resurrection are clear, but the fact remains, Jesus did rise from the dead. The tomb, beloved, is empty. Christ is risen. And his resurrection from the dead almost 2,000 years ago opened the door for our own future resurrection on the last day. You see, for those who hope in Christ, you will also be given newness of life. Now, here's the reality. You and I will one day die. The statistics are staggering. One out of every one. All of you will one day rest in the grave. It's a reality perhaps you don't like to think about. Death is the enemy after all. You will die. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, one day your body will be raised as well. And you will, your, your body will be united with your soul. And you will live eternally with our Savior and our God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so today as we celebrate this most pivotal of events in human history, all of the scriptures beginning in Genesis look forward to that day that the Messiah, the promised Savior and Redeemer in our Lord would come and he would atone for the sins of his people on that cross. The patriarchs and the prophets, they all looked forward to the redemption which would, which, by which they would be purchased by the death and the resurrection of our Lord. Our hope, then, is bound up in what we celebrate on this Lord's Day. It's really what we celebrate every Lord's Day. It's the resurrection of Jesus. Christ died for your sins, He was buried, and He rose again. I want you to understand that without these truths, there is no church, there is no Christianity, and there is no hope. But that tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And this matters because this is the message that you and I need to hear and that we need to rest in. This is the message, beloved, that the world needs to hear and rest in. As well. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us our basis for hope because it is Jesus Christ who has conquered sin and death and has given us new life in Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord God, we glorify You. We are so thankful, O God, that the tomb is empty. That he is not there, that he is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Oh God, may we believe that. May we rest in that fact. And may every day of our life be ordered in such a way that we can say that he is risen indeed and that we glorify you in that and that we have hope in him, that our sins have been forgiven that he has atoned for us, and that we one day look forward to that day when we too be raised from the dead, and that we will be united with our Savior in glory eternally. We thank you, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.